Hello, and welcome to episode number 66 of the Point of Convergence podcast. As always, I am your host, Exoacademian. In the long history of strange events occurring in the lives of human beings, the drive for understanding has been, not surprisingly, shaped by the model of reality prevalent at the time. Thus, while our distant ancestors saw the appearance of strange, awe-inspiring, non-human intelligences as a manifestation of angels and demons, entities normally bound to the spiritual domain beyond this mortal coil, modern Westerners have tended to see more recent appearances of these non-human entities as the arrival of extraterrestrial entities who have traversed the vast expanse of outer space to get here. In both of these described kinds of encounters, the interpretation has less to do with the elements of the encounters themselves and more to do with the overarching meaning-making model of a particular civilization. And of course, this is not just a time-bound phenomenon, because even today, a shamanistically-oriented culture is likely to see these others in a very different light than a scientifically-minded society shaped by the values of the Enlightenment. In fact, when the gatekeepers of a particular society are convinced that certain kinds of described encounters just simply cannot be, as in modern Western societies, then when these encounters are cloaked in a particularly potent degree of what is often termed high strangeness, the event is just suppressed altogether, lest the witness be deemed mentally unstable or of questionable credibility. This, of course, doesn't mean that such events don't happen, but merely that they have no place to be categorized and analyzed within a particular framework. All that is to say, the annals of non-conventional encounters from across time serve as a kind of roadmap for our shifting collective attempt to describe reality itself, and to separate the understanding of these kinds of encounters from the overarching meaning model of a particular time and place in which they occurred, is to miss a major point of the exercise, for these matters work hand-in-hand in a coordinated and interwoven feedback loop of event and interpretation. Typically, while a certain brave subset of pioneers are willing to question the meaning model of a particular time and place, the overarching meta-narrative doesn't begin to break down, making room for new and transcendent hypotheses until the sheer volume of outlier data has created enough collective cognitive dissonance so as to make it clear that there is no other feasible way forward than to trailblaze a new meta-narrative altogether. Speaking of trailblazing new meta-narratives, today we're going to discuss the work of just such an individual. Donald Hoffman, an American cognitive psychologist and professor in the Department of Cognitive Sciences at the University of California, Irvine, with joint appointments in the Department of Logic and Philosophy of Science, the Department of Philosophy, and the School of Computer Science, is someone who, decades ago, became convinced that the reality model that Western society has been living under over the last several centuries simply cannot stand. From his perspective, and he is one of a growing segment within the scientific establishment, the data arising from diverse fields of study has made it clear that physicalism, the metaphysical view that all mental phenomena are ultimately physical phenomena or necessitated by physical phenomena, is simply incorrect. Make no mistake, Hoffman's postulations are not based in imagination and wishful thinking. 
No, truth be told, mathematical theorems and the implications of the theory of evolution by natural selection are what drive this new line of thinking. These ideas, put forth in a model he calls conscious realism, have profound implications for our understanding of all that is. And as it pertains to the usual subject matter of this podcast, Hoffman's work opens up new, tantalizing, and explanatorily powerful ways of making sense of the strange encounters we've been discussing, while also offering a robust explanation to make sense of the so-called Fermi paradox. It is the implications of Hoffman's conscious realism as it pertains to the UFO phenomenon and general paranormality that we'll be going into a deep dive into in this, the 66th episode of the Point of Convergence podcast. As we begin this week's episode, I'd just like to remind us all that when we form hypotheses to make sense of the bizarre array of elements we see on display with the UFO phenomenon, we do so based on some assumptions about the underlying nature of reality. It's important to keep that in mind. Now, we have evolved to filter data through a series of assumptions. This has allowed us to stay alive and navigate a complex world. Remember this statement because we will come back to it time and time again in this episode. These assumptions lead us to certain hunches about what is going on in the world. This is also true of what we see with the UFO phenomenon and general paranormality. For instance, when the modern saucer phenomenon took off in the United States in the 1940s, it seemed a logical deduction to many, if not most people in our modern civilization, that since these crafts seemed beyond the technological prowess of any nation-state player of the time, they must be therefore the aeronautical property of some spacefaring race that had traveled the vast expanse of the cosmos to visit our dazzling blue pearl of a planet. While this may seem like the obvious conclusion based on the facts at hand, there are actually myriad assumptions in play there, though often those assumptions have been taken as so patently obvious to most of us that we are no longer even conscious of them being in play. These foundational elements of any overarching meaning model are known as axioms. An axiom is a statement or proposition which is regarded as being established, accepted, or self-evidently true. So again, based on our understanding of reality and what represented the final frontier of the time, it made sense that the extraterrestrial hypothesis held sway. Now, as the 20th century rolled on, and our understanding of the cosmos and the underlying nature of reality grew, the options on the table to make sense of the UFO phenomenon likewise expanded. Notice here that it's not that the nature of the encounters changed, but rather that the development of a more complex, multifaceted reality model gave birth to new interpretive possibilities. As I've mentioned numerous times on this podcast, it was world-class, boots-on-the-ground researchers like Jacques Vallée and John Keel who first postulated these new possibilities. Why did they do this? What evidence led them simultaneously away from the extraterrestrial hypothesis and towards notions like the interdimensional hypothesis? Well, firstly, they noted that the decidedly spiritual overtones, along with heaping doses of what came to be known as high strangeness, seemed to suggest something more complex, and in Valet's famous words, 
interesting was in play. In Valet's case, when he took the time to take the so-called 30,000-foot view, stepping back from our immediate context in the midst of a middle 20th century space race between the world's superpowers, he noted remarkable overlap between elements of historical fairy lore and even deep religious mythos and the modern UFO phenomenon. Why was this the case? On first blush, it seems preposterous to assume that goblins and the little people of fairy lore would have anything in common with aliens arriving from Andromeda and other far-flung cosmic locales. Not to mention, most modern, scientifically-minded folk assumed alien life was almost a certainty, while notions like the fae of distant human lore were rooted firmly in make-believe, a vestige of those poor primitive folk of ancient history who knew nothing of gravity, a spherical earth, and the trustworthiness of the scientific method. Valet put these assumptions aside for a moment and asked a deeper, more probing question, as he has been prone to do throughout his career, now stretching across many decades. Disregarding our modern assumptive filters regarding what can be, why was it that 20th and 21st century scientifically-minded, well-educated, otherwise normal and thoroughly credible people were having encounters with seemingly non-human entities that involves so many of the same elements we find documented in interactions with the fae of distant human lore? And why were so many of these modern encounters cloaked in such a heavy fog of spiritual overtones, so much so that it often led to a wide-ranging and permanent change in the worldview of those impacted. Was it possible, Valet asked aloud, that these modern folk were actually encountering the very same entities that our ancestors had grappled with in the deep reaches of our species' history? And was it possible that the more superficial differences between modern and ancient encounters had more to do with our assumptions, which led to different interpretations of said events than real substantive differences in the encounters themselves. Alternatively, was it possible that the seeming perceptual control that these non-human others wielded over human beings allowed for them to manifest differently to fit with our underlying and shifting expectations so as to shield them from a more penetrating and objective analysis? Furthermore, was it possible that a notion such as objective analysis simply didn't apply in such encounters? That the very nature of these paranormal events ensured a strange mixture of contemporary mythos and underlying reality ended up coloring the experiences at their very root? These were the questions that researchers like Valet and Keel, forerunners in the field of paranormal and ufological analysis, were asking. They asked outside-the-box, unconventional questions because from their informed point of view, the very nature of these encounters themselves demanded that they do so. The overlapping fields of ufology and paranormal research are indebted to them as a result because they took us in new and fruitful directions. That said, we would be doing a disservice to these pioneering researchers if we were to stop where they did. That is to say, if new data emerges that points in even more bizarre and unconventional directions, we should take up the charge, boldly going wherever the evidence leads. From my point of view, when I reflect on the hypotheses that have been postulated thus far to make sense of the UFO phenomenon, 
while all of them may very well be in play to some degree or another, there is a new line of evidence that has emerged since the trailblazing days of Vallée and Kiel that points in exactly the kind of new and mind-bending direction I just referenced. And it's that evidence and the implications it brings to the table, if indeed it is accurate, that I want to discuss today. As I've often said on this podcast, the shocking nature of the encounters people have been having with a variety of apparently non-human others over time ultimately and inevitably leads to a reframing of our very model of reality. That's what's in play, full stop. If these encounters are real, and that's a loaded term if ever there was one, and we'll get to that, but if these encounters are real, and I believe evidence suggests they are, then our current model of reality needs not just some tweaking, but an entire rewrite from the ground up, as it were. And speaking of these questions around the very nature of reality, here's a question we should begin with. How do we know that what we define as real really is so? How do we know we're not simply deluding ourselves like we would argue our ancestors were doing so much of the time when they, from our point of view, merely made up stories to feel more secure amidst an array of frightening and unpredictable events? Enter Donald Hoffman, a man of our times, who is here to question virtually everything we've come to so concretely believe is trustworthy in teaching us about the actual underlying nature of reality. To be sure, the questions that Hoffman's work ends up opening up make Vallée and Kiel's postulations seem, comparatively, rather timid and tame. In the same way that new physics led to notions like a multiverse, and hence to the interdimensional hypothesis, an Einsteinian space-time laid the theoretical groundwork for the future human hypothesis. Hoffman's work is opening new doors of possibility as well. In particular, Hoffman's work is suggesting that consciousness, rather than matter and energy, may be the substrate of all that is, and that what is central to that reality are the interactions of what he calls conscious agents. In an overarching model, he calls conscious realism. But there's a lot to unpack, so let's take this one step at a time. Now, the book we'll be discussing today is Hoffman's book, The Case Against Reality, Why Evolution Hid the Truth from Our Eyes. I highly recommend this book as much as I can recommend a book. I think it has startling implications, not just for our understanding of reality, but of course as well for our understanding of what's going on with the UFO phenomenon and general paranormality. This is the central question, as described in the publisher's description of Hoffman's book. Quote, can we trust our senses to tell us the truth? Challenging leading scientific theories that claim that our senses report back objective reality, cognitive scientist Donald Hoffman argues that while we should take our perceptions seriously, we should not take them literally. How can it be possible that the world we see is not objective reality? And how can our senses be useful if they are not communicating the truth? Hoffman grapples with these questions and more over the course of this eye-opening work. Ever since Homo sapiens has walked the earth, natural selection has favored perception that hides the truth and guides us towards useful action, shaping our senses to keep us alive and reproducing. We observe a speeding car and do not walk in front of it. 
We see mold growing on bread and do not eat it. These impressions, though, are not objective reality. Just like a file icon on a desktop screen is a useful symbol rather than a genuine representation of what a computer file looks like, the objects we see every day are merely icons, allowing us to navigate the world safely and with ease. The real-world implications for this discovery are huge. From examining why fashion designers create clothes that give the illusion of a more attractive body shape, to studying how companies use color to elicit specific emotions in consumers, and even dismantling the very notion that space-time is objective reality, the case against reality dares us to question everything we thought we knew about the world we see." Unquote. Now, as we begin discussing Hoffman and his work, I want to make it clear that he used to be a physicalist. He began in mainstream science. It was only when he became convinced that physicalism, as I said in the introduction, is untenable that he looked for new avenues to pursue. And he ended up with consciousness. Now, specifically, what problem did he run into from within the physicalist model that made him abandon it altogether? Well, it really comes down to what is called the hard problem of consciousness, which is defined as such, quote, the hard problem of consciousness, defined by Chalmers in 1995, is the problem of explaining the relationship between physical phenomena, such as brain processes and experience, i.e. phenomenal consciousness or mental states and events, with phenomenal qualities or qualia." Unquote. Now, for a long time, physicalists assumed that eventually we would learn more about the brain and explain how this lump of matter inside of our skull could actually generate consciousness, could generate feeling and the like. Now, in his book, The Case Against Reality, Hoffman addresses this question specifically in talking about what we would need in a physicalist model for consciousness. Quote, what do we want in a scientific theory of consciousness? Consider the case of tasting basil versus hearing a siren. For a theory that proposes that brain activity causes conscious experiences, we want mathematical laws or principles that state precisely which brain activities cause the conscious experience of tasting basil, precisely why this activity does not cause the experience of, say, hearing a siren, and precisely how this activity must change to transform the experience from tasting basil to, say, tasting rosemary. These laws or principles must apply across species or else explain precisely why different species require different laws. No such laws, indeed no plausible ideas, have ever been produced." Unquote. And again, that really gets to the root of it. That's the hard problem of consciousness. And as Hoffman just said there, because no ideas have even been proposed to plausibly explain how this could even be the case within a physicalist model, Hoffman ultimately abandoned physicalism and moved towards consciousness as a primary substrate of reality itself. Now, as you heard mentioned in the book publisher's description of this book, much of the implications of Hoffman's theory, conscious realism, come down to the implications of evolution by natural selection. Now, what does evolution by natural selection actually do? Well, again, according to Hoffman's book, quote, we encounter a startling fitness beats truth, FBT theorem, 
which states that evolution by natural selection does not favor true perceptions. It routinely drives them to extinction. Instead, natural selection favors perceptions that hide the truth and guide useful action. He goes on to say elsewhere, our perceptions misled us about our place in the universe. But the deeper message is this, our perceptions can mislead us about the very nature of the universe itself. We are prone to falsely believe that certain limitations and idiosyncrasies of our perceptions are genuine insights into objective reality. And furthermore, elsewhere he says, quote, The tinkering of evolution can concoct perceptual interfaces with endless forms most beautiful and most wonderful. The vast majority of these, however, are to us most inconceivable. Evolution is not finished tinkering with the perceptual interfaces of Homo sapiens. The mutations that bless 1 in 25 with some form of synesthesia are surely part of the process, and some of these mutations might catch on. Much of the tinkering centers on our perceptions of color. Evolution defies our silly stricture that our perceptions must be veridical. It freely explores endless forms of sensory interfaces, hitting now and then on novel ways to shepherd our endless foraging for fitness, unquote. Now, by the way, when he mentions veridicality there, he's talking about truthfulness, being actually aligned with reality itself. And his point is, that is not what evolution does. Evolution serves up subjective interfaces virtual realities, if you will, that we experience through our perceptions in order to keep us alive and to perpetuate the species, not at all to show us reality. And just to make this clear, this is not a guessing game. He's not merely postulating here. There have been mathematical theorems that prove that our ancestors that saw more of reality would have been driven to extinction. Full stop. In an interview with Quantum Magazine, Hoffman made this even more clear. He was quoted as saying, quote, The classical argument is that those of our ancestors who saw more accurately had a competitive advantage over those who saw less accurately, and thus were more likely to pass on their genes that coded for those more accurate perceptions. So after thousands of generations, we can be quite confident that we're the offspring of those who saw accurately, and so we see accurately. That sounds very plausible but I think it is utterly false. It misunderstands the fundamental fact about evolution, which is that it's about fitness functions, mathematical functions that describe how well a given strategy achieves the goal of survival and reproduction. The mathematical physicist Chitan Prakash proved a theorem that I devised that says, According to evolution by natural selection, an organism that sees reality as it is will never be more fit than an organism of equal complexity that sees none of reality but is just tuned to fitness. Never. Unquote. And in that same magazine interview, Hoffman brings up his famous desktop interface metaphor, where he says, quote, there's a metaphor that's only been available to us in the past 30 or 40 years, and that's the desktop interface. Suppose there's a blue rectangular icon on the lower right corner of your computer's desktop. Does that mean that the file itself is blue and rectangular and lives in the lower right corner of your computer? Of course not. But those are the only things that can be asserted about anything on the desktop. 
It has color, position, and shape. Those are the only categories available to you, and yet none of them are true about the file itself or anything in the computer. They couldn't possibly be true. That's an interesting thing. You could not form a true description of the innards of the computer if your entire view of reality was confined to the desktop. And yet the desktop is useful. That blue rectangular icon guides my behavior and it hides a complex reality that I don't need to know. That's the key idea. Evolution has shaped us with perceptions that allow us to survive. They guide adaptive behaviors, but part of that involves hiding from us the stuff we don't need to know. And that's pretty much all of reality, whatever reality might be. If you had to spend all that time figuring it out, the tiger would eat you." Unquote. Now, as Hoppen points out there, the desktop interface metaphor is a very useful one because we know that when we drag a file folder into a trash can, so to speak, on our desktop, that's not actually describing what's really going on. In fact, it's not even close. It's an approximation that tells us what our actions will produce. In other words, it's a kind of fitness function like we see with evolution. What's really going on with the computer behind the scenes involves transistors and zeros and ones and binary code. And of course, that's nothing like what we see with the desktop interface. It is related, but only in a very abstracted away kind of way. Now, again, I understand that this is hard to wrap our heads around. Our intuition tells us that what we experience is reality. How else would we conclude anything else? It's all we've ever known. And on top of that, we all say the same things about it. When I look at a tree in a forest, you generally see the same tree, basically. So that gives us confidence that we're seeing something really there beyond just our perception. But again, what Hoffman's saying is that's not true. And in terms of us both seeing the same thing and giving us more confidence, therefore, that it's real, intersubjective agreement does not equal truthfulness because we are the same species sharing the same interface, we should expect common ground. Our bias and lack of additional context leads us to believe we are experiencing reality as it actually is. But again, getting back to the desktop interface metaphor, that's akin to assuming that if we all use Microsoft Windows to run our computers, that Microsoft Windows is fundamental to computer programming. Of course it's not. It's just a shared software interface. And what a shock one might find when stumbling upon iOS, the Apple desktop interface, which presents the reality of computer experience very differently. So again, think about this desktop interface metaphor and don't be confused or led astray assuming that just because we all see the same thing generally, that that means what we're seeing is real because we are a single species that arose from the same genetic background. We have been evolved to see reality in a certain way. We share the same paradigm of a conceptual interface, and that's it. It doesn't say anything about objective reality beyond that. Now, later on, I'll go into more of the implications for what this means for the UFO phenomenon and general paranormality, the encounters human beings apparently have with non-human others. Of course, what people often ask is, for abduction experiences, for instance, are they actually real or is it just happening in their so-called consciousness? Is it more like a dream state as opposed to real? But of course, we realize when we think about the implications of what Hoffman is proposing here, 
that reality itself is not what we think it is. When we say it's something real, all we're really saying is, is it happening in our usual desktop interface kind of environment? And if it's a very advanced intelligence, a non-human intelligence, an alien intelligence, alien to the desktop interface we all share, then of course it's not necessarily going to render in the same way that icons usual to the desktop interface render. I know this is hard to wrap our heads around, but it's key. And I think this opens up interesting avenues to pursue in terms of explaining some of the high strangeness, some of the ways that these others seem to show up in ways that defy the rule set of our reality, especially when you think about our reality more like a virtual reality that we all share. Let's get back to that interview in Quantum Magazine that helps flesh this out a little more. The interviewer asks, so everything we see is one big illusion? And Hoffman responds, we've been shaped to have perceptions that keep us alive, so we have to take them seriously. If I see something that I think of as a snake, I don't pick it up. If I see a train, I don't step in front of it. I've evolved these symbols to keep me alive, so I have to take them seriously. But it's a logical flaw to think that if we have to take it seriously, we also have to take it literally. Then the interviewer asks, if snakes aren't snakes and trains aren't trains, what are they? And Hoffman responds, snakes and trains, like the particles of physics, have no objective observer-independent features. The snake I see is a description created by my sensory system to inform me of the fitness consequences of my actions. Evolution shapes acceptable solutions, not optimal ones. A snake is an acceptable solution to the problem of telling me how to act in a situation. My snakes and trains are my mental representations. Your snakes and trains are your mental representations." Unquote. Now, earlier on, when we were talking about the work of Jacques Vallée and John Keel, I mentioned how new hypotheses rolled out as our understanding of reality became more complex and offered up new potential avenues for sources for some of these non-human others we were apparently interacting with. But that said, when you think of each of the common hypotheses we see bantied about, they generally are based in an understanding that space-time is foundational, that somehow space-time is an accurate description of reality. Even when we talk about a multiverse and the idea that there may be many universes within a totality and that some of these others may be coming from an alternate Earth or some other alternate dimension, physically, we're still thinking in terms of space-time. But one of the interesting implications of Hoffman's work is that space-time is not really real. And just to be clear, it's not just Hoffman who's saying this. There are many physicists, cutting-edge physicists, at the leading edge of their field who are recognizing the same thing. For instance, Nathan Seberg of the Institute of Advanced Study at Princeton said, I quote, I am almost certain that space and time are illusions. These are primitive notions that will be replaced by something more sophisticated, unquote. And Hoffman goes on to say in his book, quote, physicists realize that space-time is doomed. Space-time cannot be foundational in physics, a new theory is required in which space-time, objects, their properties, and their fiction of cause and effect sprout from a more primordial ground." Unquote. So let's make that really clear. He's saying that physicists are realizing this, that space-time, 
as a conceptual notion to describe our reality from a foundational point of view cannot stand. It is largely untenable at this point. We need something else which gives life to, which creates an epiphenomena, something that comes from it, that looks like space-time, objects, their properties, and the fiction of cause and effect. Very interesting there, because when you think about synchronicity, different elements of high strangeness that we've noted, that I've experienced many, many times, almost on an increasing level over time, we have some understanding of how that can be going on. Because again, usual cause and effect is more like a kind of action within our interface. Something more primary is what's really going on. And here we might remember what Einstein said of these matters. He said, I quote, Time and space are modes by which we think and not conditions in which we live, unquote. Okay, so this really comes down to a notion like realism being undone. This is what Hoffman has to say in that regard. Quote, I want to propose that realism is false, and what we're seeing is more like a user interface or a virtual reality headset. Think about a virtual reality game of tennis. You're playing VR tennis with a friend. You both have your headset and bodysuits on. You see your friend's avatar on a tennis court and you start playing. Your friend hits the tennis ball to you and you hit the tennis ball back to your friend. But is your friend seeing exactly the same tennis ball that you're seeing? Well, of course not. There's no public tennis ball. You have some photons being sprayed to your eye by your headset. And those photons are causing your visual system to create your own perception of what you would call a green tennis ball. Your friend has a headset on, which is spraying photons to his eye, and his visual system is creating his own green tennis ball perception. It turns out that both of these perceptions are coordinated by something else, namely a supercomputer that's sending the photons to both headsets, causing both headsets to work in coordination. All the things that we would do to say that objects really exist, even when they're not perceived, hold here in virtual reality. That doesn't mean that the tennis ball exists and has any physical properties when it's not perceived. It just means that there is some objective reality." Unquote. And so from all this, from all these implications of the research that Hoffman has done, and again, I want to make it clear, these are based on mathematical theorems. This is not just postulation. The reason why it's so hard to really reckon with this is because it's so counterintuitive, not because it's not well supported by the evidence. It really is. But again, from Hoffman's point of view, he sees consciousness as primary, and aspects like matter and energy are epiphenomena within consciousness and not the other way around, as reductionistic materialism would have you believe. And so what Hoffman proposes is something he calls conscious realism which he defines like this, quote, Conscious realism makes a bold claim. Consciousness, not space-time and its objects, is fundamental reality and is probably described as a network of conscious agents. To earn its keep, conscious realism must do serious work ahead. It must ground a theory of quantum gravity, explain the emergence of our space-time interface and its objects, explain the appearance of Darwinian evolution within that interface, and explain the evolutionary emergence of human psychology." Unquote. Now this is key. What he's saying is, whenever you postulate something, a hypothesis, you begin with certain axioms, certain givens. You say, give me this, 
And from that, if I can spin up everything else in reality, then there's a lot of explanatory power behind my hypothesis, behind my model. And believe me, there are just as many of these axioms, these unproven aspects of reality that are behind reductionistic materialism. What Hoffman is saying is, give me consciousness. Let's begin there. And if this is really pointing to reality as it really is, then from it, I should be able to spin up space-time, human psychology, quantum gravity, and the like. And that's exactly what he's pursuing now in his ongoing work. And now I'd like to offer up a few concluding thoughts for your consideration. As I've been saying, this whole notion is certainly counterintuitive. But how could it not be? After all, imagine you were born with a virtual reality headset on and spent your entire life that way. And assume everyone around you from your species had on that same headset or that same kind of headset from a shared interface, referencing the same virtual reality worldscape. Of course, that would seem and feel real, fundamental. How could it not? It's all you and everyone around you that you can communicate with has ever known. That's point number one. Now, point number two, someone might argue that this leans heavily on the evolution by natural selection. That theory holds sway in this model. Now, what Hoffman would say is there probably is something more primary than what looks to us like evolution by natural selection. But nevertheless, that's the way it appears in our desktop interface. And it is pointing like a roadmap towards something that is real, that is fundamental, that is evolving consciousness itself. Thirdly, Hoffman suggests reality as it really is, is absolutely teeming with life. But that we haven't found it, and this is of course described in the Fermi paradox, which says, if the universe is so huge, and if there should be plenty of planets with the environmental conditions that would give birth to life, why haven't we found it? Why haven't we come across spacefaring civilizations or found them with SETI and whatnot? And he's arguing that it's because we're looking in all the wrong places, that the space-time construct itself is part of our interface. And he's saying that actually the outer reality beyond that interface is likely teeming with life. And again, not just because he wishes it to be the case, he thinks this model, again, based on evolution of consciousness and consciousness being primary, would give birth to a myriad number of consciousnesses. But again, we've just been looking in the wrong place. We need to look outside of our construct to find them. Now, do we have any hope of being able to look beyond the confines of our own desktop interface, which is space-time, as we're talking about today? Well, fascinatingly, Hoffman believes, yes, we can. He believes we can develop technology, AI as it were, that allows us to hack out of the construct and therefore make contact with these numerous others, these other intelligences, these aliens beyond the construct that he believes are literally all around us. Now, a fascinating notion to consider is that these others, the aliens we've been interacting with, or at least some of them, may have already arrived at just such technological prowess, and this has allowed them to hack in to our shared virtual reality. If indeed this is about an outside intelligence hacking into our shared virtual reality, our shared desktop interface, which is space-time as we know it, this goes a long way towards potentially explaining much of the very high strangeness that has so long left us perplexed. 
After all, if what we have long considered objective reality is more like a long-running program, then using that same metaphor, a hyperintelligence could hack that program, producing phenomena that appear startling, bizarre, and sometimes even absurd to those living according to the rule set of that particular virtual reality program. The rule set we live according to, again, has been shaped by evolution. It is not any more ultimately real than the rule set of a video game. And as such, an outside intelligence could hack that system and play by rules that defy and bewilder the expectations of those existing within the system, i.e. us. And on that note, we've come to the close of another edition of the Point of Convergence podcast. If you'd like to support this podcast, you can do so by going to patreon.com slash exoacadamian. But until next time, friends, from deep within the Blue Ridge Mountains of North Carolina, this is Exoacadamian signing out.